political dynasties in Indonesia, spats in the South China Sea, and electric vehicle development. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jafet Kitsan, and today is November 2nd, 2023. On today's show... I think the CSV is a testament of not just the bilateral relationship, but then also of Vietnam foreign policy, especially the so-called hedging balancing act that Vietnam has been pursuing for quite a while. And it all happened in a seemingly very quick turnaround, but then actually that is the work of many years in preparations. That was Do Huang, who chatted with Greg Poling about the U.S.-Vietnam relationship. I'm excited for that interview, and we're so glad you get to listen in. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Josiah Gottfried in the studio. Josiah is an intern here with the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative. Welcome. Happy to be here, Jasmine. So I hear you studied in Hong Kong. What was your favorite part? Honestly, I really liked the Vita Soy drink. It was the first thing I got when I was released from quarantine in Hong Kong. It's so hard to get here in the U.S. Oh, I love those. What's your favorite flavor? The malt one. Excellent choice. I hope to visit Hong Kong soon. On to our first story, spats in the South China Sea. You work on Asia maritime issues, so I'm sure you've heard all about it. Yeah. Recently, there were two boat collisions near the Second Thomas Shoal involving vessels from the Philippines and China. Fortunately, no one was hurt. It's a sign of a continued strain in relations, worsened by ongoing tensions over the contested waters within the South China Sea. The Philippines has a mutual defense treaty with the United States. After the collisions, President Biden promised to uphold the agreement, saying that the U.S. would come to the Philippines' defense. China's foreign ministry responded by stating that the United States had no right to be involved in the contested waters since it isn't a claimant. Amid the tensions, ASEAN and China restarted their work on a code of conduct for the South China Sea last week, which is an important step toward maintaining stability in the region. Even with talks on the table, it could be years before any of the issues come close to a resolution. Previous talks haven't yielded significant results either. Moving on to our next story. As the Philippines remains embroiled in serious maritime disputes with China, other Southeast Asian countries have been working to leverage Chinese investments to boost their economies. You're right. Last week, Thailand set up a special operations center to identify and attract investors to five strategic industries, including the electric vehicle and automobile industry. According to the Secretary General of Thailand's Board of Investment, the center is eyeing Chinese electric vehicle makers in particular. Thailand has already attracted investments from numerous Chinese EV companies in 2022 and 2023, including BYD, Great Wall Motor, and SAIC Motor. Malaysia has also been working to attract investments into its high-tech industries, emphasizing the EV industry as well as semiconductors. Last week, Tanku Zafrul Abdulaziz, Malaysian Minister for Investment, Trade, and Industry, said that the country is looking to leverage existing economic ties to drive economic growth, expand market access, build resilient supply chains, and more. This aligns with Malaysia's recent announcement of a new industry master plan in September, which aims to build a more advanced manufacturing sector by 2030. Now let's move over to Indonesia, where the 2024 presidential race is heating up. The incumbent, President Joko Widodo, is very much involved. An Indonesian court case cleared the way for Jokowi's son, Gibran Raka Booming Raka, to run on the vice presidential ticket by removing a minimum age for candidacy. Gibran is currently the mayor of Surakarta in central Java and has registered as the vice presidential candidate on the ticket with Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto. You know... What makes it even more interesting is that Jokowi's brother-in-law is the chief justice of the court that allowed the ruling to occur. 
Hmm. Strange things are afoot. It's spooky season after all. Yeah, the Indonesian presidential election is a three-way race with Prabowo tipped to win, but anything could change at this point in the game. We'll just have to wait and see. Indeed. But one thing's for sure, Jokowi is trying to keep his legacy alive in more ways than one. Now for our final news headline. In nearby Malaysia, 16,000 people rallied in a Kuala Lumpur stadium on October 24th to protest Israel's actions in the Gaza Strip and to voice their solidarity with the Palestinian people. The rally was the largest held in Muslim-majority Malaysia so far, with Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim also joining in. Not surprising, given that Anwar rejected Western pressure to condemn Hamas and called Israel's Gaza strikes the height of barbarism in earlier interviews. The rally was organized by the Malaysian Islamic Youth Movement, co-founded by Anwar in 1971. It follows a rally held just days before in the country's Independence Square, which had over 10,000 attendees. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Josiah, for stopping by. Up next, Greg's interview with Do Huang, so stay tuned. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I'm your host, Greg Poling, and I'm afraid on the last episode, I lied when I said that co-host Alina Noor would be back this week. Alina is no longer in China. Instead, she's in Hawaii, making us all jealous. But that means we couldn't quite make the time zones work because I, at the moment, am in Ho Chi Minh City, attending the 15th annual East Sea Institute's South China Sea Conference. And today I'm joined by a great colleague and a former CSISer himself, Do Huang. Huang is a research officer here at the EC Institute of the Diplomatic Academy of Vietnam and has been doing a lot of the legwork to pull this whole thing together this year. Huang, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Greg. Always great to see you and uh, CSIS co-workers, and welcome to Vietnam. Thanks so much. So for those listening, Huang was one of the unfortunate few who was interning at CSIS in summer, right, of 2020. Yeah, during the height of the pandemic. That's right. So Huang did a whole, basically a whole semester for us, and we never got to meet in person until probably two years later when you were with the AV and started coming to, to see us. And as I recall, you were on a Fulbright at the time, right? I was, yeah. I was doing my Fulbright program at the George Washington University at that time. And in the summer is when Fulbright Vietnam pulled all the yeah. participants back to, right? Like overnight, you got 48 hours notice. Hey, I have to leave to go back to Hanoi. Yeah, it's more like 30 hours. But anyway, let's not drop into that. I'm grateful for the experience. It was a great learning curve, you know, considering all of the social movement going on at that time and political scenario in the U.S. in particular period. So all good. All it, good. it was a great experience all around, I'm sure, up until the last 30 hours. So we, we can talk a bit about the South China Sea Conference. And I do want to give you a, a chance to flag this important conference, which has been going on for a decade and a half, is actually two years older than CSIS's South China Sea Conference that we like to crow mm-hmm. about so much. But the core of the conversation I want to have today is about the U.S.-Vietnam relationship overall. And as I'm sure most, if not all of our listeners know, President Biden visited Hanoi last month, made a in and out few hour stop on September 10th between his trip to India for the G20 and his trip to back to the U.S. to commemorate 9-11. And the reason he did that was to formally elevate the U.S.-Vietnam diplomatic relationship to a comprehensive strategic partnership met with uh, Communist Party General Secretary Nguyen Phu Cham, the rest of the leadership. And I think surprised a lot of people because there had been debate for at least the last couple of years about whether or not we would be able to elevate relationship to a strategic partnership, which would be the next 
level up in Vietnam's diplomatic hierarchy. And instead, we just skipped the whole step, went straight up to the ladder to the highest, formerly the highest level of diplomatic recognition in Vietnam, which is the same level occupied for now a long time by China and Russia, and more recently by Korea. So I guess the U.S. is top four. Why don't I just start off by asking you, what do we make of the CSP, as we can abbreviate it? How important is this really? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to share it from my personal point of view as a sort of millennial in the USN, but then also somebody who does a little bit of reading or research work on that. I think the CSP is a testament of not just the bilateral relationship, but then also of Vietnam foreign policy, especially the so-called hedging balancing act that Vietnam has been pursuing for quite a while. And it all happened in a seemingly very quick turnaround, but then actually that is the work of many years in preparations. And also, I would say that beside the CSP announcement, it's also worth paying attention to some of the other activities or other policies or other interaction between Vietnam and other partners that happened in the rather same period too. For example, yes, Korea with Australia and also definitely with China to see the comprehensive pictures of Vietnam policy. And it does show that the balancing of the hedging was, I would say, from a citizen point of view, that it does show the fruit of a very long period of hard work, but then actually the long-standing traditions of the foreign policies of Vietnam. I think a lot of the chatter around this elevation in the U.S. was a bit confused, at least among those who don't follow Vietnam closely, because this is a term that means far more on the Vietnamese side than it does on the U.S. side. In the U.S., there's a very black-and-white distinction. You're either an ally or you're everything else. And terms like so you don't have the categorization, right? So we have strategic partnerships, we have comprehensive partnerships, Mm. Vietnam with comprehensive partnership, but these are largely seen as the feathers in the cap, the deliverables that you Mm. get at a joint statement, but they don't have any legal meaning Mm. in the United States. They don't necessarily infer Mm. some kind of concrete advantage that you didn't have before. Mm. And in the case of Vietnam in particular, when you looked at the joint statement that came out from the two countries, it was mostly a recognition of things we were already doing. You know, it was the joint statement about how we had made huge progress Mm -hmm. in the trade relationship over the last few years, in the security relationship, addressing war legacies, on and on and on. There were relatively few new things. We can talk about the new things. But I think people in the U.S. underappreciated how much it is important to acknowledge the momentum in the relationship and that by so doing, by giving it this formal elevation in Vietnam, which again, I think matters more in the Vietnamese bureaucratic context than the U.S. side, at least my reading, feel free to tell me that I'm wrong, is that it makes it easier for that momentum to continue and even accelerate because it sends a signal to everybody in the Vietnamese government and party that the highest leadership is putting the U.S. on par with the other traditional partners Mm -hmm. and that you won't get in trouble for seeking closer ties with the U.S. This is what the leadership wants. Well, yeah, from our point of view, I think that sentiment could be somewhat true. Inside one particular bureaucracy, there's always different voices and different opinions. So I think having a framework, the first thing that it can do is to somehow put a cap over it, right? Put a general direction over this. So now everybody's on the same board. 
and that will create a lot of synergies within the system. And I also agree with you that the term, there's no concrete definitions for, okay, what criteria that you have to achieve in order to reach strategic or comprehensive or comprehensive strategic, right? There's no hardcore definite concrete definitions, but then it also, there's a general sense of importance, I would say. And uh, a lot of people have mentioned that in order to reach a certain level, then usually we will look at three things. The first thing is the numbers of cooperations mechanism between Vietnam and the partner, which is something that could be visible, accountable, numerable. And then the second thing is a little bit more abstract, which is the overlapping in terms of interests. And the third thing is also even more abstract, which is strategic trust. So having reached a certain level could be an indication of some of these criteria, including the three that I just mentioned, reaching a level of maturity. And yeah, sometimes it could be symbolic, but sometimes it does show the maturity level. And it again, again, show how much has been done in terms of not just material sense, but also in terms of mentality, in terms of psychological, in terms of the more abstract bonding. When we talk about the overlap of interest, and you, you referenced early in your comments, Vietnam's traditional balancing between all powers, not just US and, and China, which is baked into, I think, Vietnam's political strategy, strategic culture, the need to maintain Vietnamese autonomy at all times, mm. which means not falling too close into the camp of either, of either party. This is something the United States, I think, needs to get increasingly comfortable with if the U.S. is in a long-term strategic competition. Then that competition isn't going to be won in Tokyo or Brussels, where people already agree with us 99% of the time. It's going to be won among countries like Vietnam where we have significant levels of overlapping interests, whether that's on maritime security, on high tech, on trade. But Vietnam's not going to be a reliable vote for the U.S. on every issue. It's not coming to sit at our table in the lunchroom. And I, I think the CSP is a recognition, at least the Biden administration is okay with that. It's willing to give partners the space to disagree sometimes and agree sometimes, as long as the agreeing part works to the advantage of, of both countries. I'd also note some of the chatter in the U.S. around this was just looking at the list of countries who fall into each tier for Vietnam and saying, well, you know, China and Russia are CSPs. Isn't that a problem for the U.S.? And the argument that I made was, well, China and Russia became CSPs, what, 15 and 20 years ago, respectively. If you look at the momentum in Vietnam's relations, Korea was elevated, what, a year ago, then the U.S., now it's pretty clear that Australia and Japan are on the docket for elevation, maybe before the end of this year. It sure looks like Vietnam is moving to elevate relations, not with just with the U.S., but other U.S. like-minded partners. And that is all to the good for us. Well, I would frame it in the way, as I have mentioned before, not U.S. like-minded partner, but just Vietnam partner. Right. They are all Vietnam's partner, Russia's, China's. Yeah. So in our foreign policy, we always give particular focus on bordering countries, the neighboring area in the regions and big powers. So if you read in our part of Congress policy document, then you could 
pick up that sense of importance. So anyone who fits with that criteria and also some of the measurable and unmeasurable criteria that I mentioned before, yeah, could always go into different work. But yeah, I find it interesting that you mentioned the sense that the U.S. is getting more comfortable with their partners not agreeing. Not all the U.S. <laughs> Certainly not everyone in the U.S. I mean, but shouldn't this case ever since what after the Cold War, shouldn't it be the norm already? Isn't it a little bit too late to start getting comfortable to it now? Yes, I think at least among the current party in the White House, you are seeing at least part of the political class, I think, really embracing the notion of multipolarity for the first time, that we can't just divide the world into camps, because most of the world is going to be in the middle. Is there any actual signs of that? I think the elevation of the U.S.-Vietnam relationship is a sign of that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as if the U.S. has not given Vietnam significant room to disagree, or at least maintain a high degree of strategic autonomy on some of the more important issues of the day, not least the Russian war in Ukraine. And we've seen the same with India, for instance. Not everybody is getting that space. But those non-aligned partners that the U.S. has deemed strategically important are clearly being given more space than I think the U.S. would have been comfortable giving just a few years ago. Mm. And maybe that's a recognition of the relative shift in power in the system. Okay, I see. You also mentioned one of the three criteria for this elevation being the growth of strategic trust. And there's a lot that goes into that. War legacies addressing on and on. But I think two key issues that have to be appreciated that I think both sides work pretty hard to address is one, the lingering economic concerns after the Trump administration from the trade fights, the Section 301 investigation, the accusations of Vietnam's currency manipulation. And somehow, even without a trade agreement, I mean, IPEF is not a trade agreement, but somehow it seems the Biden administration was able to assuage concerns in Hanoi that even if the 2024 election goes against the current administration, Vietnam won't see a return to the bruising trade fights of the Trump administration, either because now U.S. business is so deeply invested in Vietnam that they'll fight against it, or because the bureaucracy has already done their investigations and Vietnam already survived the 301 investigations. And the other is the Biden administration had to assuage Vietnamese concerns, at least in part of the government, that the U.S. goal is regime change. And we saw that pretty explicitly in the public statements that General Secretary Chum and President Biden made when they announced that, with both sides noting that the U.S. respects Vietnam's system of government. That's a big step to have that said publicly in Hanoi on the steps of the government office in order to get this done. Mm. Mm. Oh, so these are the two of the issues, right? But then I would borrow the word of one of the ambassador yesterday. He was in the commentary, live commentary post some of the sessions of the South China Sea conference. And he used the analogies of any personal relationships or a husband and wife or wives and wife, husband and husband <laughs> relationship that you don't have to agree with each other on everything. But then at the end of the day, you can still move on and you can still move forward with each other. And I think he used his particular marriage as the case study. But I think that sentiment is really truthful in this case. There's always things that we do not share the same sentiments and attitude but then also instead of focusing on that we could divert our attentions into a lot of the 
overlapping areas of interest and that is where strategic trust can be built and i completely agree and i'm so glad that you mentioned the world legacy issues and in vietnam we don't really use the word world legacy right we use the word world consequences right right so which is our way also just another layer so in something that we work together but then there's, sometimes there's differences but then we can still does it mean that the world consequences cannot be moved forward no obviously we've done a great job and there continue to be progress as long as we keep our head together so that would be my two cents on the two issues that you mentioned and regarding the regime change i don't think biden was the first one to brought up that sentiment we've seen similar statement from previous leadership even under the trump administrations when the high leaders visited vietnam so it's not necessarily a new thing yeah point taken on war legacies i think it, it certainly helped our consequences war consequences <laughs> it certainly helped that we had the announcement during vice president harris's visit two years ago setting up the new partnership to help vietnam identify its own missing in action and killed in action after years of, of really the u.s focusing so much on our own minks as a foundation for normalization and then we saw in, in the joint statement last month a commitment to complete the remediation efforts at bianhua airbase to clean up dioxin or agent orange yep. contamination mm-hmm. and that really has been a, a unique bedrock of the relationship it, in the u.s at least especially in the u.s congress the desire to address issues from the war has provided a ballast in supporting U.S. Vietnam normalization and deeper ties that we we don't really see in almost any other U.S. relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, normalizing with Vietnam helps, I think, bury some of the ghosts of America's own political past in a way that's that's pretty unique. We should touch on some of the other specifics that came mm-hmm. out of this. And to be honest, there weren't a lot people noted this. Maybe I missed something that I only noted four really new announcements in the joint statement, and most of them were just aspirational so they hope to establish a new dialogue at the foreign minister secretary of state level and a new law enforcement security dialogue i don't really know what that means and then there was the the i guess more important the ones that the white house certainly wanted to highlight were the two big tech announcements support for semiconductor workforce development initiatives in vietnam which right now is only two million dollars in seeding from the u.s but could grow but it represented an overall effort by the u.s i think represented also by u.s industry to invest more in the semiconductor manufacturing supply chain here in Vietnam. And then the other was the announcement of the ORAN, the Open Radio Access Network Training Center, Training Lab here in Vietnam. A similar ORAN efforts we've announced, for instance, in Manila as well. So this is an effort to, from the U.S. perspective, secure 5G networks that are not wholly reliant on Chinese tech. And I suppose from the Vietnamese side, these are the kind of positive sum developments you want to see. What was missing, people noted in the U.S. at least, was very little focus on security. It was buried at the very bottom. There was a paragraph on the South China Sea that, that basically reflected the normal language about freedom of navigation and, and Vietnam's right to develop its own resources. But let me not put words in your mouth. Why was it important to make sure the security cooperation was made secondary in the public statements? And why was it important? Well, there's certainly a reason that it didn't start with, here's everything we're doing on the defense side. Mm, Does it usually start with the defense? I think the U.S. likes to start everything with with the the defense defense issues. Well, I would say that actually, if you look at the 10 pillars, right, in the CSP framework, 
you can see the, a lot of security there. And I think the first pillar is always political and diplomacy, right? And then you have trade and economic, and then, yeah, followed by innovation, science, and cultural educations. And then we have climate change, public health issues, environmental issues, then we have war consequences. And then it's true that, you know, the security defense thing was a little bit maybe in terms of order behind it was 10 out of 10 right? right but then i would argue that the sense of security is not just about defense relations or military military relations everything can be security now right and then in uh the general sense is that economic issues is is a security issues climate change for me is a huge security issues public health after covid after all the pandemic obviously and even the trade issues could also be you know the security in terms of supply chains in terms of how to maintain resiliency so all of that i would say that the security sense is always there it's not secondary at all and they on the climate change point they also did highlight the effort to implement the jet p the just transition partnership which i think the vietnamese jet p is 15 billion 15.5 15.5 billion dollars from the u.s and other other donor partners all right, let's pivot again, and this time to the reason that I'm here. You want to make a plug for the 15th annual East Sea, South China Sea Conference here in Ho Chi Minh City? Yeah, why not? Always happy to do so. So the South China Sea Conference is one of the flagship program from the Diplomatic Academy of Vietnam. So if you have listened to Dr. Sun or Dr. Zoom's speeches yesterday, you could see that our goal is to create a platform where people can discuss in a frank, open manner, but then still substantial and produce practical and concrete food for thought, uh, some uh, policy recommendations or takeaways to all of that is to contribute to a better management of the South China Sea issues, which is increasingly also evolving, not just from just a sovereignty or maritime dispute sense into something bigger than that because it is now also the issues that regard how to uphold the rule of law how to interpret and apply international law and how to create good precedent and also how to promote resiliency economic resiliencies and middle powers and small powers roles in our increasingly as you said multi multi-polar world so yeah i'm happy that we are able to have that platform and i'm also happy to see the number of the attendants including you uh, one of our long-term partner has increasing and i'm also happy to see that the platform has grown to be more and more inclusive year after year not just in terms of the issues that we cover but then also in terms of the people who go to the conference regardless of their backgrounds where they come from or their genders and sexes and affiliations so i first came to i think the sixth conference in Da Nang in 2014 and since then i mean it's clearly become the largest international policy focused conference in vietnam but it's also really become one of the flagships on the diplomatic calendar around the region it's not quite shangri-la but beyond shangri-la it's hard to think of another conference in the region that draws as much attention and as many high-level participants. So congratulations to you and the EC Institute and DAV. I'm sure once all of us fly out tomorrow morning, you can't wait to have like a two-day nap over the weekend. Yeah, I'm just a part of the team. So yeah, I would say, yeah, the credit go to the team. It's a collective effort. But I'm glad that you 
have that impressions that our reach has been extended. I'm glad to hear that. All right, Huang, that's all the time we have. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks all to you for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks. And this time, I promise you won't just have to listen to me. Alina will come back. All right, until next time. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Angus Lamb, and for the last time, Yume Lin. Our host today was Greg Poling. My name is Jaffet Kitson. And I'm Josiah Gottfried. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.